What you believe about Jesus will change everything you know about yourself, your world, your destiny. Welcome to our series on the Gospel of Mark, Son of God. Did you have a favorite book as a child when you were growing up? A favorite story that you love to read? Maybe hear it over and over and over again. Maybe it was a classic hero versus a villain story where right versus wrong, good versus evil faced off. And how would good, how would right triumph? Maybe you loved that story. Maybe it was a rags to riches story of someone overcoming just incredible obstacles to become successful. Or maybe it was just a character that you identified with because it sounded like they could have been you. They thought like you. The artist's description of that character looked like you. Oh, you love to hear that story over and over again. You know, our tastes in stories may vary, but our parents and when we're parents usually use stories as ways to teach us morals. Some of the books that I remember hearing and growing up with, and some of the books that I loved as a dad when when, uh, my son was really, really young, were stories with morals attached that we could teach life lessons from. One of my favorite examples of that kind of genre, a story with a moral attached to it, was the story of the little engine that could. I wish we had time to to read it together on the stream today, but uh, the video time just doesn't really allow for that. So let me just summarize this. Little engine is told that it can't get up the mountain. It's too small to pull an entire train to go up a mountain and go to the other side like all the big trains do. But he thinks he can and he should. And he keeps this optimistic view that one day when he gets his chance, he keeps repeating to himself, When things get hard, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And him repeating that, and of course it sounds like the sounds of what a train would make uh, going uh, anywhere, it would make that sound. Uh, that, That repeating, that optimistic phrase is what allowed him to do the hard work and to keep at it when things got hard. And that value of optimism, of, of keeping your, your head looking up, of keeping reminding yourself that it's possible that you can do it, fueled that little engine that could. I think one of the things, the reasons why I enjoy that story the most is that it's not just a lesson for little kids. It's a lesson for us big kids as well, adults. Because there are times in our lives that we wonder whether we think we can. We wonder whether the hard work is worth all the hard work. Let's face it. There are times in life when we try something and it doesn't give us the desired results. And it doesn't give us the desired results in the desired time frame. And then we give up because we listen to those doubts inside of us. It might be that you've tried a diet in your time that just didn't give you the weight loss that you were hoping for. The, the scale needle, the, the numbers don't go down. They stay the same or maybe they go up even though you're diligent and faithful in doing the hard work of the diet. And it becomes frustrating. And I think I can becomes, uh, maybe I think I won't. 
That workout program that you decide to take on because you want to get fit, you want to build muscle, you want to exercise, you want to be healthy. Um, It doesn't give you the look that you had hoped for. And I think I can becomes, I think I won't. The jobs where we've worked, they they start off with uh, so much optimism, but then sometimes that can get draining as the work gets hard and maybe we don't get recognized or maybe when the business is successful uh, uh, and a part of that was all from your hard work and optimism that this business is going somewhere, they get bought out by a larger corporation, a conglomerate, and then they downsize your office. And your thank you for all the hard work is putting together a resume and getting a reference, hopefully, from your immediate superior. And you wonder whether the hard work is worth all the hard work. And your optimism can change from, I think I can, to I think I won't. I see this a lot in relationships. For people who want to find that, that special someone, maybe spend the rest of their life with them. The romance and the closeness that we crave doesn't seem to always be worth all of the hard work because we don't get the results we expect. Sometimes when a couple is already married and that optimism fails, that their marriage is producing what they had expected as the desired results, it can change from, I think I can, I think I can put in all that hard work to, I think I won't, and marriages fail and fall apart. And that romance and closeness that we crave just always seems out of reach. So why try? I think I won't. I think that's true for followers of Jesus. As we follow Jesus and serve him. Last week, we talked about how following Jesus is directly connected to doing the will of God. Jesus says that people who do God's will are closer to him than mother, brother, sister, father. They're closer than family. They are his family when they do God's will. And that ought to be inspiring for us to get on board, to do God's will, to stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus and serve alongside him in ministry. But there are times serving Jesus and doing God's will when our optimism fades. We lead that kids church group, TAC kids maybe. And we put in a lot of effort preparing for a lesson. We think all week about some fun games and some Bible verses for them to study and how to tell the story in a dramatic way and how to sing together, how to give some, some homework assignments to them, some, some things that will help them grow during the week with their family. We want them to get fired up about connecting to Jesus Christ and growing in a caring community. And then everybody comes together on a Sunday and the kids don't pay attention they're not interested in doing the lesson. They're not, uh, they're distracting others in the group. And it seems like they've come with their own agenda. We just want to eat candy. We just want to have the snack. We just want to get out of here. We want to go. The same is true for serving in youth group. 
You prepare a lesson, you prepare some fun games, you make sure that all the kids are going to be able to come and then they don't pay attention. Nobody thought about last week's lesson, it just didn't track with them at all, so you don't have anything to build on for this week. And they distract other kids, they want to sit beside someone, they don't want to sit beside someone else. And it seems like they've come with competing agendas. We just, we want to do our own thing. We don't want to be involved. We just want to be off with our friends and all of that. And it can really drain your optimism. And it's not just true for little kids. And it's not just true for middle school and high school students. It's true when you try to serve adults. You prepare a lesson for a growth group. You come together, everyone agrees that this is what your group is going to do. This is what your Bible study is going to do. And then the adults don't pay attention. The adults don't do the homework. The adults distract other people. The adults come with competing agendas. Just think of me, think of me, think of me. Or uh, where's the food? I want to get back to the food and talk about those things. Instead of talking about connecting to Jesus Christ and growing in a caring community and how we can do that doesn't just happen serving others in church it happens when we're serving others in the community right for Jesus we're trying to talk to our family and friends about faith we're trying to maybe invite them to church things like that and they push us away and they call us things like you're intolerant of other people's views you are holier than thou because you think you're better than me you think you need to fix me We try to serve people. We try to help people who say they need help, who say they want to change, and they struggle with change. Change is hard. They keep falling back into old patterns of living, old addictions, old problems. And they don't seem to be capable of doing the hard work, of making the life change that they want to make in their lives. They make excuses about it. Or even worse, they manipulate us to get what they want from us without having to change at all. And they share excuses like, well, you just don't know how it is for me. You don't know me at all. You don't know my life. And if you knew my life, you'd do exactly what I would do. Or they'd say things like, hey, I thought Christians were supposed to serve and love and give and forgive. And they try to to guilt you into doing what they want. You know, you don't have to be clergy or paid staff in a church and see that sometimes no matter what you do as you serve Christ, as you faithfully do God's will, it just doesn't seem to have positive results. And and Trinity family, isn't that true for our church? Haven't we seen over a number of years, decades in fact, our fair share of great moments in ministry that never really seem to build kingdom growth and momentum that tracks for the long term. That can drain your enthusiasm and be frustrating. And it can change that I think I can to I think I won't. But here's why quitting is actually the worst thing that you can do. You may feel like it, but Jesus says, don't give up. 
Here's why you don't need to throw in the towel and why hard work for Jesus, why doing God's will shoulder to shoulder with Jesus is always worthwhile. Check out this story from Mark chapter 4. We read in Mark chapter 4 verse 1, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in, uh, in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things in parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a hundred times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, if you grew up in church or if you've read this story before from the Bible, you may already get a sense of where Jesus is going with this. But put yourself back in the day when this story was new to people. They were discovering through Mark's gospel when it was written as he was in Rome with Peter um, that, oh, this is what Jesus did and this was the story? Or the people who were originally there, they hear Jesus teach this. This would have been weird, I think, to say. Uh, 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 suffice it to say. This would have been weird because it doesn't make sense. What kind of a farmer sows seed everywhere? Some scholars have suggested that maybe some farmers had a small enough parcel of land that you would have put seed everywhere. But I, I'm not quite confident of that. I think that even a farmer would recognize, hey, putting seed right by the path isn't going to do very well. But clearly this guy does. It doesn't seem to be very wise simply because of the different soil types. And secondly, the good soil produces a crop of 30 or 60 or 100 times what was sown. That's not just improbable in farming and gardening terms. That's miraculous. Imagine planting one acorn and getting a hundred trees from it. This is miraculous. This is more than beyond improbable. This seems impossible. And what resulted from Jesus telling this story was just a mass level of confusion. No one knew what Jesus was talking about. Why would Jesus do this? Well, his disciples wondered that, and they asked him that. We read in verse uh, 10, When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that... They may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. 
Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. That doesn't seem like much of an explanation. Isn't that what Jesus wants people to do, is to turn and be forgiven? His disciples are a little confused by this as well because they wanted to know why Jesus doesn't just give them the truth. Wouldn't that have been ultimately more helpful? Well, again, I think Jesus really does know what he's doing in the same way that a parent knows how to help a child with homework. Any parent knows that doing the child's homework when they get stuck is not the solution for the child to learn long term. That giving them the answer directly isn't the best thing because that's just telling them what to write down but not telling them how to think and process and figure it out on their own. A parent wants them to learn and Jesus wants them to learn the same and he's going to use parables to do it. Why parables? Well, Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah 6. Again, if we had time, we'd flip to that passage and we'd look at that story. But uh, let me just summarize real quick. If you grew up in church, you know Isaiah 6. It's the story of when Isaiah was worshiping in the temple when the king had died. And he had a vision of God, of God's holiness, of God's perfection, of just his righteousness. And Isaiah realized that in light of who God is, he was undone in the presence of a holy God that he was a man of unclean lips, that he did not deserve to be in his presence, and he feared that God had come to judge him because of the things that had come out of his mouth from his heart, speaking to others. He feared that God had come for him. And of course, an angel comes and you know purifies his lips with the coal from the altar, and, he, and then God says, uh, who can I send to give my message to my people? And Isaiah's, here I am, send me. You know that story. You've probably heard messages on that if you grew up in church. But the message is what Jesus references. And part of the message was that give them a message in a way that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So what Jesus is doing is replicating what God gave as instructions to Isaiah. And what he's saying is, what happened but way back then when God gave the instructions to his prophet was that he wanted the prophet to speak to his hard-hearted people, his rebellious people, in a way that would make it clear to them that they were not right with God. And you, you can't just tell someone, right, that you're not right. Because people get defensive or they think, well, I am right. He wanted to do it in a way like a parent helping a child with homework would make them go, wait, I don't get what you're saying. And if I don't understand what the prophet, the messenger from God is saying, what God's man, what God's woman is saying, I might not be as close to God as I think I am. You know this. I know this. That our own personal sin is something that we are sometimes blind to. We think of other people's sin more seriously than our own. We don't take our own sin seriously. And sometimes we just don't see it in ourselves. And I think 
in the same way that you and I would teach a child how to think and figure this out through self-discovery. I think this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying that if you don't get this teaching, if you don't get this parable, then maybe you're missing something. The parable often had a judiciary function, a judgment function. And it acted almost like if Jesus knew the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. If you tried to make a horse drink, you push its head down in the water, it still wouldn't drink, but it also wouldn't be able to breathe and it would just die. The key to making a horse drink, though, was not just leading it to water and saying drink. The key was to make the horse thirsty. You can give the horse salt. And the natural desire to quench that thirst will come. And that is what Jesus is doing. He's offering this parable as salt to get them to start to think, how close am I to the reality of God's kingdom? Am I really drinking from the water? Do I understand my thirst? And Jesus would say, he who has ears... Let him hear. It was an invitation to to lick the salt block, so to speak, and to ingest that salt, to, to become thirsty for what Jesus was talking about. And that is why Jesus used parables. Because that idea of making people thirsty to help them discover on their own, for themselves, where they are at with God, the reality of who they are with God, whether they're as close as they think they are or maybe there's a wider gap, is actually the secret of how the kingdom of God works. Jesus would go on and say in verse 13, then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. God's will is for all of us, not just preachers to share his word with others. All of us are preachers. All of us are biblical communicators. Even though some people would be gifted with the gift of evangelism, all of us are evangelists in the same way, even though some of us are gifted with the uh, gift of preaching and teaching, all of us are preachers. All of us are teachers because we're all preaching and teaching something to someone. And so, God says, 
sow that word. But understand, even as you want people to understand God's word, you want people to respond, you cannot control that. And most of the time, it will seem like your words are not going anywhere. They're not having the results that you expected. There will be times when you say to people, this is what God's word says, and you'll do it in the best way that you can in order to solicit a response. You're putting out that salt for people to take, and they push it away because Satan comes and takes it away. And they'll say, this is not for me. I reject this. I'm done with it. I don't want it. And they will walk away, and you'll feel like, well, I can't ever do that again. Some people, we will talk to them, and at first they receive it with joy, but then it doesn't really go anywhere. They don't really start to take root, take action on on investing in it for themselves, and so they never actually go anywhere, and that's frustrating. Sometimes we'll pour into people, we'll teach them God's word, we'll instruct them, and they'll walk in it for a time, but other things come along, other worries, other desires. I want something more than this. This isn't just as satisfactory to me. They will take that and they will walk away from everything you've communicated from God's word in the best way that you can. Most of